And because the entire faith of the church is stronger, the church can endure an erring pope because he is not eternal. It's, it's common sense. I said, we have to apply, beside the supernatural vision, simply common sense, practical sense, know the history of the church and say this case is irresolvable. Archbishop Carlo Maria Vigano uh, wrote a, a, a piece where he gave several arguments, but one wasn't so much about deposing Pope Francis as much as it was about questioning Pope Francis's actual acquiring the papacy. So a sort of a pre... Uh, what he was talking about was the mens rea or the intent with which Pope Francis went into the papacy. And for the laity, it makes a lot of sense because when we enter into marriage, if we intend to never have children or intend not to be faithful to our spouse, the marriage, even though we might go through the ceremony and so on, would be invalid. And what uh, Archbishop Vigano presented was that he seems to him to be clear that Pope Francis went into the acceptance of the papacy with an agenda. We get that from the, the biography from Cardinal Daniels, that he has in a program, it very much seems, if, we, if anybody read it, he's following the program of Cardinal Carlo Maria Martini. If you read his 1972 dream for the church, it almost seems, <laughs> almost verbatim what we're doing. So his suggestion was perhaps Pope Francis in accepting the papacy went in with such an agenda and therefore like with a marriage, if you go in with an agenda to not do the ends of marriage, or not do the ends of the sacrament, or to, in his case, the ends of the Pope would be to, to protect, defend the doctrine of the church. So what do you make of Archbishop Vigano's argument in that, in that sense? These are very weak arguments, completely weak, without basis. First, how you cannot compare the papacy with a sacrament. It's not a sacrament. So therefore, this argument is not applicable to here. Second, the church always, this is an axiom of the church, de internis non judicat ecclesia, about the interior things. The church has no power to judge what, what is your intention. It's only God knows how we can know. Even when there are some elements which we can deduce, as you mentioned, this is too weak. Because in the last moment, a person can change. Mm. Even in the moment of election, he can, he can change and say, no, I have not these intentions, which I had before the election. Or So you see, this is so weak. And in the air, hypothesis in the air, it is impossible to, apply, um, to apply this in this case. It's completely subjectivistic and arbitrary. So this we could apply to many popes. Let us say the popes of the Seculum Obscurum no? in the 10th century who were po uh, uh, put in the papacy by the mafia, the Roman mafia families, their sons, their immoral sons. John XII was put with 18, 19 years, an immoral young man, and he had no intention, at least as he lived before he was put he, was, he lived a dissolute life and he was only to have the papacy to have power and money. And this he did. 
and he left all his pontificate, even the official uh, Roman description of the po popes uh, after the death. Uh, it was written about him, the Holy See, the, the, the Rome, but the qualification of his pontificate after his death. This pope left his pontificate only in adultery and vanity. This was all, and so he did. And so in the, but he was recognized as a valid pope, always. No one said, oh, maybe he had an intention only to gain the papacy for have money and pleasures, but what he had, basically. And so we have other cases also. Therefore, this argument is completely weak, not applicable. The second, it's more basic, which these people do not observe. It says that in cases of an invalid election, let us say there was simony or several cases of valid, invalid or allegedly invalid elections, from the moment it is a praxis of the church, it was not a norm written, but praxis, but 2,000 year praxis is, is strong. Mm -hmm. And so the, the church behaved in this way always. And let us say this, that in the moment when one is elected, even with doubts, mm -hmm. from the moment when the electors themselves, the cardinals, start to name him as a pope, they were the electors, and the entire episcopacy, from this moment he is the true pope. And eventual, in his, how do I say, irregularities of intention, of a election, of, of bribe or simony, are healed in this moment because of the, the entire church, because the election of a papacy is not a divine law. So this is the error also of Archbishop Vigano and similar people. They are so much exalting simply rules of an election, which are human rules, not divine, mm -hmm. to the category of untouchable, infallible, divine rules. And the method of the election of a pope, it's only a method. It's human. It's not an absolute value. And unfortunately, Archbishop Vigano gives de facto an absolute value to the norms of the conclave. And this is not corresponding to the, I say, to the praxis of the church. Mm -hmm. And this is common sense. Then we will have a completely disaster. No one knows who is the, the, the supreme pastor of the church. They start the doubts. And to eliminate this greater evil for the church, the doubts, who is the pastor, or to establishing a second one, and then will be uh, an entire schism. This is worse, this evil, mm. than to accept a formally invalidly elected pope who will basically accept it by the entire church. So I repeat, the, the, the norms is the church, the entire episcopacy is quite, he's the pope, we will, the, the majority, and during a period of time and the, the, the people, so on. Because, the, the, I repeat, the Pope is not an, an absolute, how do you say, norm, the elections, and the Pope is not the Church itself. This, he's only a server, servant of the servants of God. Mm -hmm.
Hello, friends. To celebrate the momentous overturning of Roe v. Wade, we at LifeSite have minted just under 10,000 of these brand new limited edition pro-life silver rounds. Now, each round is stamped with the image of the Supreme Court of the United States featuring the date that the High Court delivered this historic victory. And on the front of our pure silver rounds, LifeSite's logo surrounded by a brilliant sunburst and draped with olive branches. They, of course, commemorate our 25-year anniversary of LifeSite News. We began in 1997 in September, so September of 2022 was 25 years. These one ounce silver rounds are available from our partners at stjosephspartners.com where you can fulfill all of your silver and gold needs in this perilous time. May God bless you. These questions are, are, are very difficult because I know you've, you've read uh, Universi Dominici Gregis, the 1992 constitution of Pope John Paul II with regard to the election of the Roman pontiff in paragraph 76, spoke about, laid out the rules, of course, in the document for the election of the Roman pontiff. But then in paragraph 76, talked about how, if the rules, if the, the what has laid down there weren't followed, the election would confer no power on the one elected. And so in times past where this wasn't the case or wasn't written, perhaps this changes it now. And Archbishop Vigano, in his document, talked about the issue you're talking about, about the acceptance of the election by the majority. But he says that in the past, one of the anti-popes also had the majority of the bishops and cardinals in the church accepting his election. How do we make sense of that? No, first, I would repeat, the norm of even Dominici Gregis is a human law. It's not a divine law, I repeat has not an absolute value and must be uh, subordinated to the greater good of the church, which is the, the clarity, uh, who, is the, who is the Pope, as I already said. Mm -hmm. Second, the example which Archbishop Vigano brings is not applicable, ap applicable here because it's another situation. First, there were two uh, claimants of the papacy. Here is only one. Here is no other who, who is against, who is claiming, and an, let, let us say, a second claimant of the papacy uh, on the side of Francis. No one. This is a, it is a fundamental distinction of the situation. And there were two claimants. But the first, Urban VI, was elected. Even the election was, in my opinion, invalid because they had so much pressures of the people from Rome cardinals to elect an Italian cardinal, not a French, after Avignon, that they were even, they had fear of, of death. And in this, uh, this situation, they elected an Italian cardinal, the Archbishop of Bari, who took the name of Urban VI. And in the first month, the entire College of Cardinals accepted him as Pope. It is proven. And mentioned him in the Mass. Oh, and when the Pope started to, to rule as a dictator and injuring the cardinals, he, unfortunately he was uh, such a character, they were so disappointed, humiliating the cardinals. Then, after some months of naming him Pope, a part of them, the majority, separated themselves, the French, especially the French cardinals, and, and said, oh, the election was invalid because we were under pressure, and we now elect a true pope, Clement VII, a French, who then went to, back to Avignon, and Urban remained in Rome. 
this is a completely different situation, you know. And I repeat, in the first month, the entire uh, episcopate named him uh, Urban as a pope. Only then, when they elected as uh, anti-pope, then they started to be split, the entire church, over 30 years, even saints. But even Saint Vincent Ferrer, who was with the anti-pope in Avignon mm -hmm. first, later he recognized his error and joined the true pope. Stunning, stunning times. And, and we have um, all this to look back to, uh, you know, and thank God, because I mean, otherwise this would seem so helpless. And yet now, at least looking back there, for me it was comforting because we've got great men of the church on either side of this question now. And Vincent Ferrer was there and St. Catherine of Siena at the same time. And they were on opposite sides. It always struck me that God didn't stop the miracles that St. Vincent Ferrer was doing, even though he was on the wrong side of the papacy debate. And of course, he got to the right conclusion in the end. But oh my goodness, what a, what a time. There is another question here. You addressed it a little bit, but it is one where the saints have spoken, um, and it's one about heresy. And I think following this papacy, even as a layman, who is not a theological background, but knows his catechism and has tried his best to raise his children in the faith, it seems to me like there's heresy of what type, what, you know, is a different question. But over and over and over again, over now 10 years, we've had not one, not even 50, but very, very, very many uh, departures from the doctrine of the faith. And so one of the quotes that uh, I have here, and it, it pertains to the question of heresy, it's from Cardinal Newman. John Henry Newman summarized the tradition of thinking that a pope who falls into heresy loses office. He said, and he's, he's presenting it as the tradition of the church. He said, we hold also that a heretical pope ipso facto ceases to be pope by reason of his heresy. If I could get your take on that. Yes, this is a meaning of the theologians, even of saints, mm -hmm. but not the teaching of the church. We have to distinguish this. Mm -hmm. Never the magisterium of the church, and I say constant magisterium. This is important. The constant magisterium of the popes taught this. No one. Only there is an indication in the old canon law, which is called Corpus Juris Canonici, which was a collection of, of canonical norms from the Middle Ages until nine, 1917, where when started the new code of canon law, there was a norm of the Decretum Graziani, which said the Pope or the, cannot be judged by no one, unless he is falling in heresy, mm. but without giving norms how to proceed. No, no norms. Only this affirmation of Grazian. And it was simply kept in the collection, but the popes did not took this phrase in, in their magisterium teaching. They did not taught this, mm -hmm. never. With one exception of Paul IV in the 16th century, who made a famous bull that a heretic cannot be elected a pope. Mm -hmm. It's only one document in 2,000 years. It's not a constant magisterium of the church. They have to distinguish. Mm -hmm. And it's not an ex decision, which someone erroneously presented this. Right. 
So we have to be very correct and careful in examining the, the history of the church. And then, you see, I repeat, it was never the teaching of the church. It was the opinion of, let us say, of Robert Bellarmine, John Henry Newman, or maybe some Francis of Sales, but not, this, they are theologians, they are not, they, they were not speaking as the magisterium. And then, and then, 1917, the magisterium of the church, Pius X, who basically prepared this code, uh, eliminated this phrase from, from the church documents, that mm. a pope uh, cannot be judged unless he falls in heresy. This was expelled from the, from the documents of the church. This was a sign that the magisterium is not supporting this idea in 1917 already, distanced themselves de facto from this opinion. And this is a very important argument, I say. As I repeat, there is no norms. What, and then the, the theologians present several possible norms how to proceed in such cases. But they are no. And they are, there is, uh, and they are not applicable. There is really irresolvable. Even in such a case, really it's irresolvable. Mm -hmm. They will only create again two or three popes. This will be uh, for sure the consequence. Mm -hmm. If a group of cardinals will depose or declare that the pope lost uh, in his office, uh, simplest con but one has to, con to state this, mm -hmm. someone. Mm -hmm. And this will be always a division. Never a cardinal college will be unanimously agreeing they will be divided. It is absolutely sure they will be divided. And then one will elect a new pope, the other will say, no, he is still the pope. Mm -hmm. We will repeat the same story as we had plenty in the Middle Ages and create a more confusion than to endure a short time an erring pope. Mm -hmm. Because I repeat, from the dogma of faith, a pope cannot pronounce heresy, cannot, when he's speaking his cathedral. Mm -hmm. It's impossible. And then after outside ex cathedra, he can do this in rare cases. But the church is more stronger than this erring pope. Mm -hmm. The faith, the sensus fide is stronger. And because the entire faith of the church is stronger, the church can endure an erring pope mm -hmm. because he is not eternal. It's, it's common sense. I said, we have to apply, beside the supernatural vision, simply common sense, practical sense, know the history of the church, and say this case is irresolvable. Mm -hmm. in, in that, I think uh, Archbishop uh, Vigano agrees with you. He called it in his document a situation that is humanly irredeemable. Should the next pope, or a next pope, declare Pope Francis a heretic and say he wasn't Pope, would you fight such a declaration? What would you think of that? Or would that just be the church, the magisterium, the official magisterium finally providing clarity on the question? He will never do this a Pope, I repeat, because the magisterium of the church never accepted formally the idea that a Pope is losing his office because of heresy. Therefore, cannot do this. He can condemn him as an erring pope, but not declare his pontificate as invalid. This is the distinction. Yes. We had the example of Pope Honorius I. 
he spread heresy. And therefore their successors, they did not declare that he was an invalid pope. Mm. They said he was a pope, but a bad pope. Yeah. And we condemned him. And the same three ecumenical councils uh, declared uh, Honoris I as a valid pope, but an erring pope, a heretical pope. This is the distinction. What I guess is so stunning to, to a lot of people is just this, this concept. Because even in your catechism, which flows from the Catechism of the Council of Trent, it defines what a Catholic is. And the Catholic must not only believe the faith, even though they even might not practice it fully, they, they might say a cant or whatever, or, you know, be too weak, but they must also profess it. And if, if they don't profess then the faith, or they profess a faith different to the faith, which seems to be what's happening with the current papacy, then you must question if this person is a Catholic, which then begs the question, can a non-Catholic be Pope? Of course, a non-Catholic cannot be a Pope, but when he is baptized and is a priest, the, the canon law does not have other conditions for the election of a Pope as a male, baptized, male. Mm. If the, 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 the canon law does not say he must be orthodox and so on. Of course, it implies that he must be a cleric, but if there were a, in the history of church and election of a layman, mm. as a directly a layman to Pope Papacy, St. Fabian in the third century. Mm. And he was a holy martyr pope, from layman directly to the papacy. And so, therefore, uh, it is implicitly, of course, uh, that he might have to have the right faith. No? But uh, unless he is not publicly declaring heresy publicly, we have to assume that he is still a Catholic. When he is pronouncing heresy, he is, uh, he is still Pope, he is doing his office, but in a bad way, of course. But uh, in our case, Pope Francis did not formally pronounce a heresy until now, but he is an artist, and he has the art of ambiguity, mm. of confusion. Mm. And uh, we have to pray for him, and I repeat, and to restate our Catholic faith in front of the Pope and continue with our conviction and joy of the Catholic faith. I repeat, we have not to, to be too much centrated on the Pope. This is also a kind of, I say, not healthy. Mm -hmm. Indeed. Excellency, you have been so patient with us and have answered so many hard, hard questions. It is a great grace. It's a grace for the Church because these things have confused the faithful and you're one of the voices of great clarity and simplicity, which is just a joy. It's an honor to know you, to work with you a little bit, and uh, to spread your, your catechism, which uh, we will do. And God bless you. And may I ask, please, your blessing upon LifeSite, all of our staff, and also all of our viewers who um, love you and pray for you. Thank you, Mr. Weston, for your dedication and your collaborators all and especially the young collaborators, I am happy to see young people who are so committed to the true Catholic faith in your work 
and may God bless with many uh, fruits your work and all to whom you bring this true benefit and this work of true uh, love for the neighbor, to give them, to the, transmit them this charity of the truth. And there, for this intention, I bless you and all your work. Et benedictio Dei Omnipotentis, Patris, et Filii, et Spiritus Sancti, descendat super vos, et maniat semper. Amen. Amen. Praised be Jesus Christ. Now and forever. Thank you. You're welcome. And God bless all of you. And we'll see you next time. everyone, this is John Henry Weston. We hope you enjoyed this program. To see more like it, be sure to hit the subscribe button below to get all the latest content from LifeSite News. Check the links in the description to read more and connect with us on social media so that you can stay up to date with all the latest life, family, faith, and freedom news. Thanks for watching, and may God bless you.